Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. The eleventh talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on December 14, 2014 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2014. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 5, Translation, Installment 2, accompanies this talk. Voice permitting, we're going to move on into the book of Hebrews. So just to review, the circumstances that have given rise to the writing of this work, of this address, the believers, the Jewish believers who have become believers in Jesus, it has not paid off for them. It has not gone well for them. They're being persecuted. They're being abused in a variety of different ways. And they're growing weary. They're getting tired of being picked on for being followers of Jesus. And as the pressure of their circumstances, as the pressure of the persecution mounts on them, all of a sudden unresolved issues, unresolved intellectual questions are beginning to become more and more important to them again. They had never really resolved in their own minds how does it make sense for the Messiah, who we claim Jesus to be, for him to be an ordinary human being, a mortal, who, was, who died an ignominious death at the hands of God's enemies, and who, though reports are that he was raised from the dead, hasn't seemed to bring about the eternal kingdom of God yet. So how is he really the Messiah? That's a problem that never really resolved for themselves. So all of a sudden, with it not, being, with it not paying off for them to believe in Jesus, all of a sudden they're beginning to drift away. They're beginning to say this just isn't worth it, and they're drifting back, returning back to their ancestral religion of Judaism. So in the face of that, Paul writes this address. We just finished the first section last week, and in the first section, it's an exhortation. He opens the letter with two main exhortations, and the first exhortation he makes is Jesus it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus, as the Son of God, is a human being. Let's go back and look at all the promises that got made with respect to the Son of God. Those promises were made to human beings. They weren't made to theophanies. They weren't made to these spectacular beings or spectacular creatures that were just Yahweh himself appearing in some sort of visible form. They were made to ordinary human beings. So we can't hold that against them. Furthermore, it makes sense that God would send his Messiah into the world as a human being because he was intended to be the high priest for human beings, to be their intercessor and to play the role of leading them into the eternal kingdom of God and to rule over them as a fellow human being, as their brother. So it's completely fitting that he should come as a human being. And it was completely fitting that he should die, that God's purposes would include Jesus' suffering, the death that he died, because that's the very fabric of humanity itself is an existence of suffering. So he joined us in our suffering to become one of us so that he might be our leader, our high priest, our intercessor. 
That shouldn't be held against them. That makes sense. That's fitting, Paul says. So the first exhortation in the light of addressing those objections that people might have to him being the Messiah, his first exhortation is, Jesus, the Son of God, is more important than any theophany of God ever was. So if you don't dare disobey God when in the form of a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud or a cloud over Mount Sinai, when God speaks from the cloud and commands you and you dare not ignore what he says to you, it's all the more important that you not ignore what the man Jesus taught you because that's God speaking to you in a much more direct and exalted and majestic way than any theophany ever did. This human being, Jesus, has more standing and more status than any other appearance of God in the whole history of Israel. So don't ignore him. And Paul ends by saying, I'm not going to ignore him. I trust him, and I invite you to to trust him as well. So that was the first section that we looked at last week. Then in this next section, it's going to be very similar. It's going to follow a very similar pattern. But now the issue is not, is Jesus more exalted and more important than Theophanes? The issue now is, is Jesus more exalted than Moses? Now we can see why that would become, that would be an important issue for the people that he's writing to. It's an important issue for the people he's writing to because they're going back to Moses. This Jesus thing is not working out for me. I'm going to return to the religion of my parents I'm going to go and keep the law of Moses just like they taught me to do. I'm going to honor him and live in obedience to what he taught us. And this next section that extends for a good chapter and a half, but this next section is really devoted to saying Jesus is way more important than Moses is. So if it was important to listen to Moses, it's all the more important that you listen to Jesus. Don't disregard what he said. Now, what did he say? both in section one and in this section. He doesn't really spell it out for us. I don't think he feels any need to spell it out for us. What is the word of God that came to us through Jesus? It's the gospel, the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. And by the gospel, what I mean by that, I think what Paul would mean by that is just the full account of who Jesus is, how he fits into God's purposes, how he accomplishes God's purposes, and therefore what we can expect to get from God, given that Jesus has come into the world to be the future king of the kingdom of God. Well, that message that Jesus came into the world to proclaim, what he's saying is you dare not ignore that. You ignore that at your peril. So that's where we're going to be heading in this next section. Most of the section is devoted to an exegesis of Psalm 95. And in order to understand Psalm 95, we're going to have to go back and look at some of the background to Psalm 95 that you have in the Old Testament. So we'll do that. But Psalm 95 reads, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of trial in the wilderness, and so on. But that's the theme that he picks up on. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So what Paul is going to do in his argument is apply the message of Psalm 95 to his readers. What he wants his readers to do is to hear the exhortation that David is giving to his readers. David is telling his readers, today, if you hear the voice of Yahweh, the voice of God, don't harden your heart like your fathers did. And 
Paul is saying, that applies to us as well. You, my readers of the book of Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And the reason that you don't harden your hearts is when we get to the end of the psalm, because God, in response to the unbelief of the ancient Israelites, in response to their ancient belief, he said, I swore in my wrath, forgive my language, but it's essentially the the force of what God is saying. As I swore in my wrath, I'll be damned if I'll let you enter my rest. That is, God absolutely resolved to not let them enter his rest. And Paul's going to spend a great deal of time massaging that. What exactly does he mean by not enter my rest? We need to know what that means. And the reason he says that is because what was true in the time of Moses, David believes to be true also in his own day. And Paul says, and it remains true today. And I could say it remains true for us today as well. The reason you don't want to harden your hearts in the face of the voice of Yahweh is because you forfeit the right to enter the rest if you do. So don't do it. And that's the exhortation. And we'll look at all the details, but when all is said and done and we get through examining all the trees, that's the forest that we're going to find is a simple, straightforward exhortation. Jesus is way more important than Moses. So when you hear the gospel of Jesus proclaimed to you, that's the voice of God. That's the voice of Yahweh speaking to you in a way that's even more direct than Moses ever presented you with the voice of God. So when you hear the voice of God today in the gospel being proclaimed to you, don't harden your hearts. One of the most significant things about this next section is the very clear and explicit and unmistakable connection that Paul makes between your heart and your head. What's going on in your inner core, what your spirit or what he calls your heart, and what you believe intellectually. He makes this very clear connection. What he's worried about with respect to his readers is that they are hardening their hearts. Their problems, are, their intellectual difficulties is not why they're drifting away. That's not why they're not believing. That's not why they have the problems. We always use that excuse. We always say, I just can't wrap my mind around it. I'm just not convinced. I just, don't, I just can't bring myself to believe that. But the fact of the matter is, as often as not, more often than not, the real problem is we are hardening our hearts against the truth. I don't want the truth to be true. I don't want to have to bow the knee to this Jesus as Lord. I don't want to have to pay the cost of being a creature before my creator and meet the demands of being a creature before my creator. I don't want that. And because I don't want that, it's easy to throw dust in my own eyes. It's easy to self-obfuscate and make the theology of the gospel just too hard to grasp and too hard to understand, and then let myself off the hook and say, I'm really a nice guy. I really want to know God. I really want to love God, but it's just too hard to understand what this is all about, so I'm going to shelve it. I'm going to leave it alone. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to just get on with my life without it because as much as I'd be fully willing to serve God, if it were clear to me, It's just not that clear. Paul recognizes that that's just self-justification at work. That's the evil of the human heart, refusing to honor God and yet trying to find a way to feel good about myself when I'm refusing to honor God by giving myself an excuse. 
So we'll see that connection over and over and over again throughout this whole section. You don't believe because you refuse to believe. You don't believe because you've hardened your heart. That's your problem. And then the other thing we're going to see, which is kind of interesting, is an exhortation not to harden your heart. Now that's odd on the one hand, because we all, if we understand the biblical worldview, who is the one who hardens hearts? God, our creator, the author of our being. And yet, and Paul understands that and knows that and announces that more forcefully and more straightforwardly than any other biblical author. And yet it doesn't stop him, notice, from exhorting us, don't let your heart be hardened. We want to object. Well, take it up with God. (laughs) He's the one that hardens heart. Tell him. Don't be talking to me. You be talking to him. Now, the problem is that, yes, God is the author of all reality, but the reality that God authors is the reality of my freedom, is the reality of my choices, is the reality of my thoughts, the reality of my desires, the reality of how I resolve my desires and my thoughts into choices and actions. And we know that in our experience, in the experience, the way we experience our experience, it's fully within my reach to simply decide, I'm going to lay down my arms, I'm going to set aside my hostility and my rebellion, and I'm going to submit. I'm going to open myself up to the truth instead of stealing myself against it. I'm going to receive it instead of rejecting it. I'm going to stop refusing it. It wins. I'll let the truth win out in my life. That's ultimately a choice that we make. Now, granted, in the larger scheme of things, it's a choice that God will create, God the author of our being. But I don't know what he's going to create, and I have no control over what he's going to create. But what I do have control over is my experience. What I do have control over is what I'm going to do right now in the midst of this existential crisis, where I have to decide, I have to make up my mind, who am I going to be, who am I going to serve, and what am I going to do with my existence? St. Bobby said, you've got to serve somebody, and it's up to us to decide who to serve. Okay, that's where we're headed in this section. Before we begin diving into details, questions or comments on, on any of that? Okay. All right. So we're at, in my translation, it'll be paragraph 11, part 5, page 4. I think on, on yours it might say section 2. On mine, I think I changed it to section 3, but uh, section 2. In your real Bible, it's chapter 3, verse 1 in a traditional Bible. Therefore, sanctified brothers, partners in a divine summons, consider carefully the one who, according to our confession, is the divine representative and high priest, Jesus, who is trusted by the one who made him, just as indeed Moses was in all his household. But this one has been considered worthy of greater glory than Moses by just so much as the one who provides for the household has more honor than the household. Indeed, every household is provided for by someone, and the one providing for everyone is God. Now Moses, on the one hand, was trusted in all his household as a servant to be a witness to the things that were going to be explained. But the Messiah, on the other hand, is like a son over his household, whose household we are if we hold on firmly to our confidence and to the boast of our hope until the end. Okay, so he's beginning this appeal, therefore sanctified brothers, 
partners in a divine summons. Let's talk about that for a second. Sanctified brothers, most of you have probably heard me talk about this concept of sanctification. Sanctification is from the Latin. Holy or holiness is from the Germanic languages. The Greek behind both the word we translate holy and sanctified is exactly the same Greek word. So to be sanctified is to be holy. To be holy is to be sanctified. To be in the process of sanctification is in the process of being made holy. They're all interrelated with each other. So he's saying, he's describing us or the people he's writing to, which we would join them as sanctified brothers. And what does he mean by that? It can mean one of two things. To be holy on the one hand, to be holy is to be chosen by God, selected out by God, and given some kind of unique place, some kind of unique standing, some unique status in relationship to God and God's purposes. So anyone who's been given some kind of special role is holy in the sense that that word, what that means in the Bible. So when a prophet was set aside to be a spokesman for God, he's holy because he's a spokesman for God. When a priest is set aside to function as a priest in the temple, he's holy because he's set aside to function, do the priestly functions in the temple. When the king is set aside to rule over Israel as the representative of God's rule, he's holy because he's representing God in that role. When we get to the New Testament, the most common term, and this may shock you, but the most common term to describe who we are is usually gets translated saints, but saints means holy ones, sanctified ones, right? So he's using the most common designation for us as believers here, therefore sanctified brothers. Well, why are we called saints? That's the question. Well, the issue is when you think about it, it just dawned on me the other day. Someone said there's 7 billion people in the world today. Is that, am I right about that? Something like that. Seven, the population of the world is 7 billion people today. That's a lot of people. Out of this sea, this vast sea of humanity, only some are being selected out by God to have a place in the eternal kingdom of God in the age to come. Most of humanity is going to their destruction. As ugly a reality as that is, as undesirable a reality as that is, as unwelcoming a reality as that is, it seems to be the picture that the Bible pretty clearly paints. It's not our preference. It may not be the way that we would write the story. But as history is going to go down, only a very few are going to be selected out, chosen of God, to be raised again from the grave to enter into life, never to die again, and to live eternally in the kingdom of God in the eternal age to come. Well, you see how special that makes those people who have been chosen for that destiny. They are holy. There aren't too many prophets in Israel, but the prophets there are are holy. There aren't many priests in Israel, but the ones who can serve as priests are holy. There's only one king in Israel, and because he's unique, he's holy. There aren't many believers. There aren't many people destined for eternal life. But because we are so rare, because we are so few, because we are so special, we are significant in the purposes of God. That makes us holy. So that's the sense in which the Bible calls each and every one of us who have that as our destiny, saints or holy ones. 
And that's what he's referring to here. Therefore, sanctified brothers or holy brothers, partners in a divine summons. And most, your typical English translation probably has calling rather than summons here. The reason I translate it summons is I'm trying to capture the flavor that I think belongs to this word. The word can be used like when you invite somebody to something. If you invite them to a party, you would use this Greek word. But it's one thing to be invited to a party. It's another thing to be invited for jury duty, for example, or to be invited to appear before the court to testify. You don't refuse those invitations without getting a visit from the sheriff, they tell me. I don't know, but it's an official invitation, an invitation that is very sober and serious, and you don't say no to it. Well, that's who we are. We are people who received a divine summons. God invited us to become members of the people of God, members of this body or assembly of people that God is gathering together, is massing together to take us into the eternal kingdom of God where we will be subjects of our King, Jesus, forever in the eternal kingdom of God. Well, you and I have been invited to be a part of that, but not just invited like, you know, if you, if you want to, <laughs> but rather we have been summoned. You will appear and you will become a part of the people of God and endure forever into all of eternity, into the age of ages. That's what binds us together. He's not going to deal with this here in Hebrews, but there are places in the New Testament where Paul makes a big deal out of, do you understand how that binds you together? Don't you understand what that means? The most special thing that any human being can possibly have, you share in common with all of the other saints. So don't let all those other differences stand between you and them. The differences between you and other people in the body of Christ are trivial by comparison to this incredible, what he calls the bond of peace in Ephesians. This bond that binds us together is way more substantial, way more significant, way more eternal than all those trivial little things that we allow to bug us about other people. So being partners in a divine summons is the ultimate force that unifies people into a common community. So that's who he's talking about. Therefore, sanctified brothers, partners. Okay, I defined it as a divine summons. I think your typical translation has a heavenly calling. I don't think this is particularly controversial, but I translated it divine because I think it's simply describing where the source of that invitation, the source of that summons came from. It came from the heavens, namely the abode of God, the place where God lives, dwells. So if it comes from the abode of God, it's coming from him. It's his invitation. It's his summons. So therefore, sanctified brothers, partners in a divine summons, consider carefully the one who, according to our confession, is the divine representative and high priest. Okay, most of your translations, what I have translated divine representative, are going to have apostle, who is the apostle, is our apostle and high priest, or the apostle, or something like that. The problem, the reason I don't translate an apostle is because we have a very, very narrow and specific kind of sense or concept of what an apostle is. An apostle is a person that Jesus set aside to go into the world after he's gone and to be his spokesman, to represent him to the world. That's not the sense in which 
It's being used here, obviously. This is not a human being who's a representative of Jesus. This is Jesus who is the representative of God. He's the one that God sent into the world to speak for him. Now, this becomes particularly important in this context because after he finishes paragraph 11 where he's talking about what a bigger deal Jesus is than Moses, when he gets into the next section, therefore, it is just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, in what sense are you and I, or Paul's readers for that matter, in what sense have we ever heard the voice of God? When are we going to obey this psalm? Well, when we're confronted with the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is what got revealed to mankind by this man, Jesus. Jesus was sent. That's what apostolos means, is the sent one, the one who is sent. Jesus was sent into the world by God to represent to the world the truth that God wants mankind to grasp. He wants us to confront this truth and do business with this truth. So to call Jesus the apostolos, his divine representative, is to underline the fact that you and I have a message that we are confronting and we have to do business with it. So when you hear that, do not harden your hearts, he's going to say based on the exhortation of the psalm. So he's the divine representative. Just as the apostles have the authority to speak as if they were Jesus himself speaking. Jesus has the authority to speak just as if he were God himself speaking. If Jesus says it's so, then God is saying it's so. If Jesus says it's true, God is saying it's true. If Jesus says X, God is saying X. So that's the, how closely the identity is between this one that he sent, Jesus, and his father, God just as the apostles have been given a clarity of understanding that when they say something is the gospel, it's as if Jesus himself were declaring that to be the gospel. That's how clearly they understood supernaturally, I think, the message of Jesus. So the significance of this word apostolos, I think, is the kind of authority that they carry, the kind of identification that you can make between the apostolos and the one who sent the apostolos. He's the divine representative and high priest. He's the apostolos and the high priest. Now he says, this is true earlier in the sentence, the one who according to our confession is the divine representative, the apostolos and the high priest. So what does he mean according to our confession? Very much the way we use the word confession when we talk about the Apostles' Creed or the Westminster Confession or something like that, or Heidelberg Confession. It's the content of what it is that we believe to be true and that we confess to be true. Well, I think that's the sense in which he's using it here, according to our confession. That is, our understanding of things that we all share in common. What does it include? Our belief that Jesus is the Apostolos and the High Priest. Jesus is the authoritative representative of God and the high priest. Paul isn't going to do anything with the high priest here. Not in this paragraph, not in the next paragraph. But by the time we get into the heart of the argument, that's all he's going to talk about. So what he's doing here is just teasing us with this. By our confession, Jesus is our high priest. Now, he's not going to tell us what that means or what the implications of that are yet, But when he gets into the heart of the address, 
then he's going to spell out in painful detail all that that involves and all that that implies and why that's significant. But here he just lays it out there and then drops it. He's our apostolos and our high priest. And who is he talking about? Jesus. Jesus is our apostolos and high priest who is trusted by the one who made him just as indeed Moses was in all his household. Okay, to understand what he's saying there, now notice, in fact, I may have changed that since the translation that you got. Did I use trusted? I used faithful? Okay, change that to trusted, and here's why. He's quoting Numbers 12, 7 about Moses, and he's comparing Moses to Jesus with regard to him being greater than Moses. So go to Numbers 12. We are, let's I don't remember exactly how this fits into the chronology, but I believe we are after, we must be after, help me somebody who knows, I think we must be after they have refused to go into the land and then attempted to go in the land and got beat back, and God has told them, I'm going to take you to wander 40 years in the wilderness. I think that's after this, but I I may be wrong. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married for he had married a Cushite woman. Now, we don't have enough details in the Torah to know exactly, is this a second wife of Moses, who is a Cushite woman? And what exactly is a Cushite woman? Uh, Cush, traditionally, was Egypt, Ethiopia, that region. So an Egyptian, Ethiopian woman. But some people have proposed that a Cushite woman could be from a different Semitic word, that refers to a region just east of Midia. We know that he married a Midianite woman because the account tells us, is it Zohar? Is that her name? That he married a Midianite woman, the daughter of Jethro. She's the one that plays a pretty prominent role in the story. So it could be a reference to her, I would imagine, this Cushite woman. And it could be that just Miriam and Aaron have finally got around to objecting and have finally got around to being fed up with the fact that He's not married to a Hebrew. He's married to a Midianite. Or maybe a second wife. But we just don't know. We don't have enough information. I don't know anyway. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? Now, why are they saying that? We know Miriam is called earlier in the account, is called a prophetess. So God has used her to deliver prophetic messages to the people of Israel as well. And Aaron, I think, is called explicitly a prophet, if I remember correctly at times. So both of them have played that role. And so they're saying, well, God has spoken through us as well as Moses. Who does Moses think he is? Why does he think he's so special? God has spoken through us as well. And we have this comment. Now, the man Moses was very humble more than any man who is on the face of the earth. Now, this is an important statement with respect to what Paul is doing with it in Hebrews. It says, now the man Moses was very humble. I was reading some things in a commentary, I think, where they were suggesting that the sense of this word is non-pretentious, non-ambitious, that Moses wasn't the leader of Israel because he wanted to be the leader of Israel. Moses wasn't the leader of Israel because he fought for it that he grabbed onto it, that he grasped it for himself. He was very content to be whatever it is God wanted him to be, to be whatever it is that God called him to be. That in his contentment, that that's being called his humility. That's the sense in which he's humble. He's not ambitious for himself. 
Suddenly Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then Yahweh came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses, who is faithful in all my household. And that's what Paul has quoted or at least alluded to in Hebrews. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of Yahweh burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. O do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to Yahweh, saying, O God, heal her, I pray. But Yahweh said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. Afterward, however, the people moved out from Hatzerot and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Okay, the critical thing for Hebrews is this section here. He's speaking to Miriam and Aaron. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household, or whatever that word faithful should mean. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid of him? It's not describing a character attribute of Moses. It's describing the status of Moses. Other prophets are going to receive revelations from me. I'll send them a dream, I'll send them a vision, I'll give them a word, a riddle that I might give to them, what he calls a dark saying. I'll speak to them in a variety of different ways. So I will use as a prophet whoever I will use as a prophet. But it's not like that with Moses. With Moses, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. Moses is the one that I have chosen, that I have trusted, if you will. He, and I think that's how you should translate that. He is trusted in all my household, not in the sense that I found him trustworthy, although he probably has found him trustworthy, but I don't think it's the sense that I find him trustworthy. It's that he's the one in whom I am entrusting my explicit, direct revelations to Israel. He's the one who has the role to receive the most clear, direct, and explicit revelations from me to the people. And no one else is playing that role. He's unique in that standing and and having that status. So however you want to translate that, I think trusted sort of fits there, as long as we understand he's describing his role, not a character trait. So Jesus, who is trusted by the one who made him, just as indeed Moses was 
in all his household, with an allusion to that passage that I just read. So you see what he's saying? Just as Moses in his time was the one that God had entrusted with the role of receiving direct revelation from him and being able to speak directly the message of God to the people, Jesus is the one that has that role in his time. He's trusted by the one who made him, just as indeed Moses was in all his household. So again, you see the significance of that. Today when you hear his voice, today when you hear the voice of Yahweh, do not harden your hearts. Where, when, in whom do you hear the voice of Yahweh? In the time of Moses, it was through Moses. He was the one trusted to speak for God. In the time of Jesus, it's Jesus. He was the one entrusted with the role of speaking with the voice of God himself. Okay? Just kind of a side note. Notice that he says, Jesus, who is trusted by the one who made him. We could even translate it, created him. Notice we just sang a Christmas carol, begotten, not created. (laughs) Now, I have chosen to translate it that way. There certainly would be a way of construing this, that the word made is just a generic word for made. So it certainly could be who is trusted by the one who made him high priest and apostle, who appointed him to that. But I don't think so. I think he's just acknowledging that Jesus was a creature just like we are. He was an ordinary human being who was created by God. And he was created by God for a special role, a special destiny, a special status. And that status was to be uniquely trusted by God, to be God's spokesman. Okay? But this one has been considered worthy of greater glory than Moses. This one is Jesus, obviously. But this person, Jesus, has been considered worthy of greater glory than Moses by just so much as the one who provides for the household has more honor than the household. The question is, what exactly is the metaphor here? The language could go either direction. At least I'll give people the benefit of the doubt and assume that it could go either direction. It could go in the direction of being an architectural metaphor, a carpentry metaphor, that the house is a structure, And we could be talking about the one who builds a house, builds a structure, and the whole metaphor could be based on that. Or rather, I think what the metaphor is, is in a household, especially in Paul's day, any significant household by a relatively well-off Jew in the ancient world would typically have servants, and those servants would include a kind of trustee. Usually it's translated as steward in our Bibles, some kind of manager of the finances and the resources of the landholder and the householder. It's the householder's resources, but those resources are put at the disposal of the manager to feed all the other servants, to feed the children, to feed the family, and to just basically take, manage all the affairs of the household, to make sure everything everybody is taken care of and provided for. I think that's the metaphor here. And notice what he's going to do is he's going to say, Moses was a trusted servant in the household of God. He's like that steward. He's like that manager that God put in charge of the possessions. Jesus has more glory than Moses. He's not just a servant. He's not just a trustee. He's not just the manager that God put in charge. He's the heir. He's the son of the father. He's the son of the wealthy landowner who owns all the property, and it belongs to him. So just as the son of the landowner in the household 
the son of the householder, is more important and has a higher status than the manager of the household, so Jesus has more standing than Moses does. That's what he's going to say here. But this one has been considered worthy of even greater glory than Moses by just so much as the one who provides for the household has more honor than the household. Indeed, every household is provided for by someone, and the one providing for everyone is God. So God is the ultimate householder. Everyone gets their provision from God. Now Moses, on the one hand, was, quote, trusted in all his household as a servant to be a witness to the things that were going to be explained. But the Messiah, on the other hand, is like a son over his, God's household, whose household we are if we hold on firmly to our confidence and to the boast of our hope until the end. Just sort of parenthetically says, so notice, God is the householder, Jesus is the son of the householder, who's next in line to inherit all of the the wealth of the household. Moses was a trusted servant in the household, and we are all fellow members of the household. We are the ones being provided for. We are his household, he says, if we hold on firmly to our confidence and to the boast of our hope until the end. Now, why does he add that? Because that's the point of the whole book. These Jews who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah are not holding on firmly to their confidence and to the boast of their hope to the end. They're bailing out. They're departing. They're splitting. They're saying, I'm tired of this. I can't do this anymore. And what Paul is warning them is, who are the true household of God? The ones who are going to be provided for? It's the ones who are there at the end. It's not the ones who are there now. It's the ones who are there at the end. So it's a just sort of an offhanded kind of appeal to a reminder of the importance to persevere in the faith and not grow weary and give up, which is the theme of the whole book. Now, I I could say some more about that, but I don't want to run out of time. Let me open it up to your questions or comments before I do that. So it seems like the part of the argument of this paragraph is the place that different, like Jesus on one hand versus over and against Moses has in their roles, like in the household, for example. Mm-hmm. And then, I, so I was wondering how you made your how you made the decision when, in the phrase "who was faithful by the one who made him," it's, why not use that as gave him the role kind of thing rather than created? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it could be the other. I think that's a tough call. But what I decided is that it seems like the the other one is a little redundant, unnecessarily redundant. I mean, think of it this way. Who's trusted by the one who entrusted him? To which we want to go, well, no, duh. <laughs> of course he was trusted by the one who entrusted him. So it seems to be more saying something more significant if what he's saying is he's created a lot of people. God created Jesus along with all the rest of us. But Jesus, unlike you and me, was trusted with this role, had this role entrusted to him to be the apostle and high priest. So that just seems more substantial than he had this special trusted role by the one who gave him a special entrusted role. But you also have this direct just as Moses comparison. Right, right, exactly. I mean, mean, were you raising that as an objection or? Oh, okay, back up then. Explain your objection. 
Well, it seems to be a clear, direct comparison between Jesus and the role Jesus had and the role Moses had. Well, yeah, I don't think that just as is saying that Moses had the same role that Jesus had. Okay. But they both had roles. But they both have special roles where, in their own way, in their own assignment, they stood out from their contemporaries as people through whom God directly revealed his word to his people. That, I think that's the comparison. And then he goes on to say, yeah, in, to that extent, you can compare the two. But in another way, they're very, very different. Moses was a servant. Jesus was the son. Right. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Okay, this brings about some thoughts in my head. When you're talking about Moses and Jesus, you're talking about basically two different roles. I'm thinking that... If we look at, like David, we look at Jonah and some others, that it seems like, okay, this is a little bit of what Jesus is going to do in Moses. In Jonah, this is also a picture of what Jesus is going to do. And in David, there's a picture of the king, the kingly role. And I don't know, I mean, it's a little bit difficult to explain what I'm thinking but it's like God could only give us a picture of what Jesus totally is through several different people because Mm -hmm. they could not fulfill. The only person that could fulfill all of those roles was Jesus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, they captured different facets of who Jesus was and what he did. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, you talked about we choose. We have the experience of choosing, but God wrote it. Mm-hmm. And that we are the ones who are chosen are few. I'm sorry, we're... The we're, ones who are chosen are few. The mm-hmm, ones that God mm-hmm. chose mm-hmm. are few of us. So I guess I'm having a hard time. What happens if he wrote it, but we still choose it, and he chose the few of us? What happens to the rest of us? Unfortunately, tragically, destruction, ultimate destruction. And I think in my reading of Revelation, preceded by proportional punishment for for the deeds that we have done in this life. So justice is done, is satisfied for them, and then after justice is satisfied, they're literally annihilated, don't exist any longer. This might be too hard of a question, but what do you think that looks like? What do I think that looks like? Justice looks like. The annihilation part or the judgment part? The judgment part. I don't know. I really don't know. The only, what... Paul describes it as there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. So whatever tribulation and distress is, that appears to be what it is. It's not the most sellable part (laughs) of the Bible. It's not a pretty picture. I mean, what what we have to come to terms with is that biblical Mm -hmm. revelation is revealing a story of what God is doing in the world that is ultimately a tragedy, the tragic element of the biblical story is huge. And it's against the backdrop of this colossal tragedy that there's this hopeful theme of salvation for some, salvation for a few. And when we get into the psalm, it's going to be, it'll take us back to some Old Testament passages where it'll re- it really, I mean, as I was thinking about this, it's really striking the tendency that we have to presume that we're okay to presume that I'm one of the people of God. Because one of the things he's going to say is, they all came out of Egypt with Moses, but most of them died in the wilderness. And I I remember early on in my 
Christian experience, I just simply satisfied myself that, well, yeah, they died in the wilderness, but then they went to heaven, right? Because they were the people of God. So he judged them temporally, but that didn't have anything to say about their eternal well-being. The more I look at this passage, that's not how Paul's looking at it. Paul thinks that what God did by judging them and condemning them and having them collapse and die in the wilderness was a simply a temporal manifestation of his wrath toward them. And that same wrath that slew them in the wilderness is the wrath that's going to condemn them rather than grant them mercy in the hereafter. So think about all those people in Israel who assumed they were part of the people of God, but they hardened their hearts against the voice of Yahweh. And because they hardened their hearts against the voice of Yahweh, what was their ultimate fate? Eternal destruction, not salvation, not blessing. And that's what Paul is working really hard to get his readers to understand. That's what we have to understand. I think when Jesus said the way to eternal life is exceedingly narrow and few go down that way, we have to recognize that he said it's exceedingly narrow and few go down that way. This is not an easy gig. We have to guard ourselves. We have to keep ourselves. We have to fight to stay on track to be hearing the word of Yahweh and heeding the word of Yahweh and not hardening our hearts against it. Because if we harden our hearts against the truth of Yahweh, we derail and we end up going down the road to destruction that's broad. The beginning of the chapter, Paul calls them the holy ones or the sanctified ones, brothers. By that, is Paul making a positive assessment of their eternal state? No. Never. I think Ron had a great discussion of this in Second Corinthians, I think it was, where any time you address a group of people, it would be so awkward to say, now I'm talking to those of you who have been elect by God and who are actually believers, who are actually going to receive eternal life. Now the rest of you who are just faking it, <laughs> I want to address you now. You have to address in a group just making an assumption that I'm going to assume that we're all in this together. I'm going to assume that we're all elect. Now, you may prove me wrong. You may harden your heart against the voice of the Lord and prove me wrong, but that's another issue. That's another matter. But for the purposes of my address, I'm going to address you on the assumption that we are all in this, can we be called holy brothers, sanctified brothers? But clearly, as the thing goes on, he's worried about some of them. So, Jack, this whole topic... Uh, that God and us are in two different positions with regards to what's happening. Easy at Reformation when you're sitting around with other people who have a little bit of background or know what's happening, and, but it is extremely difficult to talk to anybody in um, a conventional Christianity orthodoxy where people think that they're completely in control of their own salvation. I've been there, and it takes a long time to start to put things together. You just can't, I couldn't anyway, just grasp it and say, oh, yeah. But so I guess what I'm saying is it's a tough topic to talk to Mm -hmm. other people with. Mm -hmm. This whole idea of God hardening hearts and determining who he wants, then the whole question comes up, well, what difference does it make what I do then? If, because you have to separate the two positions, otherwise you can't, I couldn't make sense out of it. Right, right. So from my perspective, I have completely free will or making choices that determine what type of person I'm going to be. 
but God has the final say. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just simple as that. And that's, it's just tough to... I don't know if it's, it's just because Christians, we like to think that we're in complete control ourselves or for our own destiny and whatever. I, I don't know where it is, but when you start talking, they say, well, that doesn't make sense. How can God have our back and um, not have our back? Mm-hmm. And then we call it free will from our perspective. And so anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, there may be spiritual issues where in our depravity, we really do want to be in control. We don't, we don't want to be creatures of a creator. So there, there could very well be moral, spiritual issues at the root of why this is so repugnant, or this perspective is so repugnant to them. But more often than not, I think it's just a historical and cultural accident. The, the problem is, is that what evolved in Christianity is a radically different paradigm than the biblical worldview. And we're not aware of that because all of us grew up thinking that my Christian beliefs are biblical. Why do we study the Bible if we don't believe what the Bible teaches? I mean, I I know whenever I didn't understand something, I just assumed that somebody had been reading the Bible because I knew I hadn't, but somebody had been reading the Bible and had come up with this, had made sense of that in this way. So I just assumed that you wouldn't be teaching me that. You wouldn't be taking that perspective if you weren't deriving this from the Bible. So it wasn't until decades into being a Bible teacher that I realized just because Christians teach it doesn't mean it's what the Bible teaches. And that, that's when I began to recognize the very, very radically different worldview that came to be historically that we call Christianity from the worldview that is the worldview of Jesus and Paul and the apostles and all the New Testament writers. So it's important to, to keep that in mind and keep that distinction. But anytime you're crossing paradigms, it's really hard to have a conversation. It's really, really hard because they're trying to fit it into their paradigm. You're speaking out of this paradigm and they're incommensurable. They just don't fit together. Ultimately, what they need to do is say, is give up on that paradigm and make the jump and decide to take seriously, maybe there's a whole different way of looking at it that makes more sense out of what the Bible teaches. And that's what we ultimately need to invite people to is once you give up on that and try this one on, see if this makes more sense. But I, you won't ever be able to satisfy them on their own terms that you're making any sense by what you're saying because what you're saying doesn't make any sense in their paradigm. It only makes sense in this new biblical paradigm. But you can't fault them for being confused by that because that's the very nature of paradigms is that you, it just gives you lenses to look through And you're not going to be able to see through those lenses what someone like you or me might be trying to communicate to them because we're looking at it from a different perspective. So it's not necessarily that there's a moral spiritual problem. There's this philosophical problem that they have the wrong paradigm. And then what exacerbates the whole thing is they've got the wrong paradigm, but they have no clue that they have the wrong paradigm because it's Christian. And Christianity is biblical, right? So I'm getting it from the Bible, so what's your problem? So they have no reason to even think that they ought to rethink it. So it's a tough nut to crack. It's really difficult to have that conversation. Okay, I think I'll let you go before my voice finally goes. So why don't don't we pray? Father, you are the author of all reality, uh, tragic reality though it is. And Lord, we just ask that you would plant it in our hearts to be eternally grateful to you that you have chosen to set us apart 
as holy ones with a destiny in the eternal kingdom of God. Lord, give us the wisdom, the humility, the true understanding that leads to nothing but gratitude to you and praise to you for your mercy and your grace. None of us deserve it. None of us earned it. You have just exercised your will to be good to us and to bless us. For that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.